You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning. I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome. Uh, It's summertime. Great to see you um, all here this morning. Listen, if you've got your Bibles... Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 6. While you're turning there, my name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I get to uh, be here at the South Campus most Sundays. Okay. All right. So Ephesians chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. And um, it's the beginning of three weeks that we are going to discuss parenting. To to start it out, um, there was a letter to the editor. It's a real deal to San Diego newspaper. Mom writes, the title of it is, Things I've learned from my children, okay? And uh, so this is, this is so just some of them. This is, this is for real. She says, there's no such thing as childproofing your house. That's one. The next one. A four-year-old's voice is louder than 200 adults in a crowded restaurant. These are all things that she's learned. All right. If you hook a dog leash over a ceiling fan, the motor's not strong enough to rotate a 42-pound boy wearing a pound puppy underwear and Superman cape. It is strong enough, however... To spread paint on all four walls of a 20 by 20 foot room. Baseballs make marks on ceilings. Um, You should not throw baseballs up when a ceiling fan's on. When using the ceiling fan as a bat, you have to throw the ball up a few times before you get a hit. A ceiling fan can hit a baseball a long way. And the glass in the window, even a double pane, doesn't stop a baseball hit by a ceiling fan. Here's another one. When you hear the toilet flush and the words, "Uh uh-oh, it's already too late. A six-year-old can start a fire with a flint rock, even though a 36-year-old man says they can only do it in the movies. There's another one. A king-size waterbed holds enough water to fill a 2,000 square foot house four inches deep. Super glue is forever. MacGyver can teach us things we don't want to know. Ditto Tarzan. Like, garbage bags do not make good parachutes. Here's another. Always look in the oven before you turn it on. Plastic toys do not like the ovens. And the fire department in San Diego has an at least five-minute response time. (laughs) Isn't that great? Well, Paul's going to encourage us this morning, and he's going to instruct us about parenting, things we need to know. There are two passages I want to look at. They're parallel. We'll spend all of our time, really, in Ephesians chapter 6, but I want to read the two passages to you. And then we'll walk through and talk about Ephesians 6. How he writes this instruction in Ephesians is he says this, Fathers, and we can read this as parents, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul says it this way, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Paul's going to have some things to say to us this morning. You know, she's parenting's hard work. There's no way to track the hours spent on a time card. There's, there's no place to, uh, that, that, that a dollar amount can be set for the value. You, you don't clock in and out of parenting. There's no overtime or hazard pay. It's, it's this intermingling, right, of joy and survival. And it's the role that you rarely feel qualified for, and yet no one on the planet knows your children better than you do. In some ways, it's this impossible task that we've been tasked with, and the stakes are high. Parents, young and old, are holding their breath and waiting for this analysis that, you know, did I do it right? Did did I do it right? Maybe you've been there. 
I, I remember one of my first, the second day I was ever a parent, is when we were bringing Maggie home from the hospital, and I'm, I'm walking backwards with a video camera, my eyes squinted, you know, through the lens, and, and there's Leslie, and she's being rolled uh, by the nurse, the nurse that we just made best friends with two days earlier, you know, we're like, always remember her. And they're rolling Leslie, and she's holding Maggie, and Maggie's sound asleep, and they, they roll her out the doors into the bright July sun, and I've got the car there parked in the pickup drop-off area, and I have spent the time reading the, the, the instructions on how to insert the, uh, the, the car seat, and my thought is, I can't believe they're just going to let us take her. I mean, and my other one was, what are we supposed to do with her? I, mean, I had no idea. Well, my first sort of act as a father was a complete failure, okay? And that was that I was to take this sleeping, precious angel from Leslie's arms and put her in this car seat. Now, how the car seat worked was it, was, it had a base, it was strapped into the back, and it had a carrier, and the, lit, you know, the handle was up to carry it, and there it is. So I take Maggie, this precious little child, all wrapped in a blanket and swaddling clothes, right? And I pick her up, and I go to put her in the car. Now, here's the thing I didn't realize about babies until that moment. Their heads are disproportionately larger than the rest of their bodies. And their neck doesn't have any muscles in it, all right? So Leslie says I dropped her, but I didn't drop her. I was just, you know, using the weight of her head along with gravity, to strategically put her in this car seat, all right? Well, the sleeping child was now a child who was awake and letting four blocks know that I was a failure as a father, all right? I mean, but that's how it goes. I mean, listen, there's physical needs, there are emotional needs, there's intellectual needs, developmental needs. All these things need to be met. And, and there's this constant ongoing teaching and training. And when they're very young, it's, it's this routine of breakfast and lunch and dinner and snacks and teeth brushing and, and bedtime reading and nightly prayers. And then the grace of it all is that one-third of every day and one-third of every week you get to sleep. Maybe. And all of this is done to prepare our children to live in a world someday without us. And we prepare them to, to go off to kindergarten and, and to make friends and, and prepare them for middle school and then high school and, and, and to sit behind the wheel of a car and to apply for college and to take an SAT and to hope they're ready to live in a dorm room and be responsible on their first job. And we pray they're going to make good decisions. Especially in those times when the stakes are high. And the consequences are very real, or you be ready to move away, to manage money, to, to meet a spouse, to be parents themselves. It's, it's overwhelming, isn't it? You know, it's, it's interesting that um, the, the moment your child is conceived, they're created to live forever. In the first 18 years of their eternity is entrusted to parents. A staggering thought, isn't it? Staggering thought. Well, listen, I know there's, there's a few kinds of people here this morning. There are those of you that are parents. I mean, you man, you're in the thick of it. There are some of you that are grandparents and great-grandparents, and you've already been in the thick of it, and you get the best seat in the house. There are some of you that are future parents. And for everyone in here, you're people with parents. And so I don't know where this might hit you this morning. man. So for some of you, this might be a life rub. This might be exactly what I needed to hear. For some of you, man, it might be this thing where for the very first time you could stop and say, you know what? I probably should let my parents off the hook a little bit. That maybe this morning you've been carrying around some things and that God would use his word for you to say, you know what? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make peace with that today by God's grace. I mean, Paul's words are, are so encouraging and yet they're so brief and so piercing. 
There are three things I want to look at. So godly parenting, I would say it this way, it aims at three things. That your child would love, that your child would learn, and that your child would launch. I want to show you where I get those three things. First, that your child would love. I think that's wrapped up in what he says here at the beginning of this verse. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then he will say in Colossians, he'll go on to say, that lest they become discouraged. Listen, angry children have a very hard time growing up and loving. It's not talking about, listen, you're going to make your children angry. If you're a good parent, you're going to say no. Your child's going to be angry. That's that's not what he's talking about. But right away, he says, listen, here's something to avoid. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Maybe your Bible says, exasperate them. Don't, don't do that. It has to do with frustration. It, it, it actually means something more than occasionally making them angry when you set boundaries. It, it means that there is this possibility that we have as, as parents... To create in our child this sort of settled anger, this disposition of being frustrated and resentful because of an, an abiding or permanent way that we would be with our kids. He says, look, it's very possible because of our parenting to raise angry children. Doesn't mean that they won't sometimes get angry if you're doing it right, but but a settled disposition of anger. How do we create that? How do we avoid it? Well, I think there are two ways that we create it. They're opposite ends of the spectrum. The, the first end is that parenting by dictatorship. So the word provoking, it, it literally means an irritation caused by nagging or demeaning in the context of everyday life. I mean, so the, in anger, I mean, that leads to anger. Anger will, will grow out of that frustration of never being able to please a parent. When we're constantly on them all the time. So I, I think it's because, listen, so some parents feel strict control is the answer to all the problems in childhood. There, there are books that will tell you this. But the decisions when we make them from that posture, sometimes or oftentimes become unreasonable or arbitrary. And even toddlers know that's not fair. Not that I'm aiming at fair. My children would be the first to tell you that. Here's an illustration. One guy write, wrote it. it, it um, it's a simple illustration. It cuts me to the core. Of, of the two ways, the, the dictatorship or the other one I'm going to talk about. This one is the one I'm prone to. Here's what he says. One spring, a young couple was planting a garden when their two-year-old son picked up a packet of seeds, began randomly poking holes in the dirt and pouring beans into them. The father scolded, if you plant seeds there, I'll spank you. Though the usually energetic little boy tended to scamper from one interest to another, he suddenly became quiet and insecure. The father eventually noticed the injured expression on his son's face. Then he realized he'd not taken the time to explain where or how to plant seeds. He'd reprimanded a son who in the moment was trying to be helpful. See, this dictator approach, here's why it's attractive in some ways. is because it's easier than the other approach. Because the reality is, if we take that approach, it doesn't require hours of listening and explaining to our children. Just simply squeeze a child into our mold, build the fence so tight around. If we do that, though, our children will be hemmed in. They'll feel helpless. And God, God speaks to us here. Do not exacerbate, exasperate your children. Overly strict parenting does that. And another thing does it too, I'll tell you on the same note, is if parents be careful that we would not, we would be careful not to attack personalities of our children. Things like, you know, you're just too silly, you're giggly all the time. 
You're too loud. You, that crazy laugh you've got, it just drives me crazy. And things like that. We wouldn't say always and never. And we'd be very careful about aiming at the personality of our children. Well, the other side of the coin, dictatorship, the other one is anarchy. So if too much control is a dictatorship, too little can lead to anarchy. You know, when the parents are totally permissive and the children are in total control. Listen, if, if you only reason with your children, like, like so if you only dialogue and talk and persuade and, and redirect and all of that, so you can frustrate them because you're forgetting they're not adults. Children need to know the presence of your authority. It is a source of security. What, what he's aiming at is, listen, don't exasperate them. Don't, don't provoke them to anger. Don't, don't let them feel an over-strictness, an overbearingness, but not an underbearingness where there's no security. There's a balance that he's aiming at. I think one way to describe the balance is not unique with me, but as a high fence and a big playground. One guy said it this way. He said, when you put a fence around a playground, the kids will use the whole playground. So, so clear boundaries, they provide security. So on one level, you might think of it this way. Knowing that you have to come home when the streetlights come on lets you pray, play freely until then. Only set rules that are important and that you'll enforce. Here are some big rules. Don't skip school. Nothing bad, nothing good happens while skipping school. Major consequences if school is skipped. So you just don't skip school. But there's also a whole bunch of little rules that we probably don't have any business making because our kids are going to disregard them. And you know what? We're not going to enforce them anyway. At least consistently. Little, inconsistent, meaningless, harsh rules provoke. As you think about the high fence and the playground, here's, a, here's one way to think about it. If there is not room for your kids to fail and fall down, the playground is too small. At the same time, if your kids don't feel the security of your authority, the fences are not high enough. And listen, as a parent, here's a reality that you see it in the Bible. I, I can tell you from personal experience, too. There are times that your children will mature faster than you grow up as a parent. There are times when the fences need to be moved and the playground gets bigger, and that'll come oftentimes before you're ready as a parent to do it. I'll tell you just one example, and that was um, around here several years ago. Um, there were several of us that had, had oldest kids that were the same age. And the big question on the table was, when does a child get a cell phone? That's not a question anymore. I think they give them to them at the hospital when they're born now. But <laughs> back then in the old days, like, you know, six years ago, uh, we were asking and trying to answer that question. We had a parent pack around here, about five or six couples of us. And I'm going to name names. I'm going to tell you who they were. It was the Bices, it was the Andersons, it was the, uh, well, a couple of others. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one, I'll tell you, and I already told him I was going to do this, Andrew Green. So here's the deal, here's how the parent pack went. We had this pack, said, okay, kids, our oldest kids, we're going we're gonna to band together, and they're not, so no matter what else the world does, right, these kids aren't going to have cell phones until they're in the eighth grade. Well... Somewhere early in the seventh grade year, I'm driving down the road, and, and, uh, and I'd already known about it. I'd heard rumors that the other parents had began to fold the, <laughs> the bad pagan parents. And so my daughter's saying to me, look, Dad, everybody has a cell phone. I need a cell phone. This is the way we talk. This is the way we communicate. This is how the world is. And I'm like, no. I mean, we said eighth grade. Eighth grade's what I meant. That's what I'm sticking to. I'm not a guy that goes back on my word, you know? And she said, Dad, I promise you, can you just listen to me? I and mean, she's so sweet. Can you just listen to me? 
I mean it. Everybody has one. And I said, I can guarantee Abby Green doesn't have a cell phone. She said, no, Dad, I'm, Abby Green has a cell phone. So I said, okay, and I'll tell you where I was. I was driving down Broadway, and I was in front of the Best Buy, and I took my phone, and I called. It came on the speakerphone, and Andrew Green answers, and he says, hello, and I said, hey, this is Ross Strader. I'm sitting here with my daughter, and she's telling me some story about Abby having a cell phone. It is complete silent on the other line. <laughs> and I realized, you know what? I'd made a rule. And I was sticking to that rule out of my own pride and saving The reality is I needed to move the fence. The playground needed to be bigger. My daughter was maturing faster than I was growing up as a parent. It was hard. You know, one of the things that we do for our kids is we pray a prayer that, that my mom prayed for me and that is that your sins will be found out. She would pray that all the time. And it was pretty effective. He'd say, Mom, stop praying that. <laughs> Next door neighbor, Alan Duggar, he got a slingshot for his birthday. So we were trying it out on the neighbor's skylight window. See how far we could shoot it. Turns out the slingshot worked. Um, it's a bad day as a 10-year-old when the police come to your house. Yeah. Two big rules in our house. We, we have some other little rules, but I'll tell you, if you were to ask my kids, you know, what are the big rules in our house? This is what we, this, these are kind of the big umbrella rules, the things that always get enforced at home. One is related to disrespect. The other is related to dishonesty. There's a lot of things I can handle as a parent. Disrespect, particularly disrespect for their mother, I, won't be tolerated. And dishonesty. When you tell the truth, that will always go better than not telling the truth. Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger. Which means, parents, sometimes we have to let our kids fail. Which I would say this, man, and it's a hard thing to do. It really is. It, it's easy to say. It's easy to write down on a piece of paper. It is really hard to do in the moment. But the reality is, it is way better for your child to have a gigantic failure while they live in your home, and you get to walk through that with them in grace, than for their biggest failures to come later without any experience of what that's like. Room enough to fail. Fences high enough to know your authority so they feel secure. It's a balance that we aim at. Well, he also is wanting, so our children, not provoking them to anger. He also wants our children that, that they would learn. Bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. So he helps us understand the balance with this statement. There's three words here, that the three in the Greek, really three words. One is the word nurture, the word for nurture, bring up. The second is the word that's translated discipline. And the third is the one that's translated instruction. So to talk about nurturing, this, this bringing up, fathers are, are exhorted, parents are exhorted to nurture their children. And if you went back into the Old Testament, you they would be thinking, okay, well, God is a father. How, how does God nurture his children? So he takes them into the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you see that he comes and he says, okay, children, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That was this nurturing of them. And then he goes on and he says, now listen, this is how what you pass on to your children. You diligently teach this to your children. You impress this upon your children. You, you talk about this with your children when, when you're at home and when you walk along a road and when you lie down and, and, and when you get up. You nurture them in their understanding of who God is. You nurture them in their view of the world. Teach children God's Word in the atmosphere of real life. Wherever you are, help them to see life from God's 
perspective, that, that's nurturing them. And when they're at school and they've, they've got a test and you are driving to school, you pray for that test that day and pray for them and for their teachers and for their friends and they're having problems with their teachers, your first response isn't to go up there as a helicopter parent or lawnmower parent or block out all the obstacles. To sit down and say, you know what? We have a God that says, cast our cares upon him. Let's pray for this teacher. Let's pray for these friends. Let's trust God. Break your finger playing baseball. You help your child know, hey, listen. God's in control. Nothing comes to us that hasn't come through his hands first. You know, kids are often have these great spiritual questions. They're trying to figure out what life is all about. What's heaven like? What's God like? It often happens at, at bedtime in those moments that we have. One writer, he said it this way. I think this is great. Peter Gentry said it this way. He said, how can we illustrate the fact that many Christians fail to see that the Christian faith is all-encompassing? It says, if we're inside a building looking out through a clear glass window, I might ask you, tell me what you see when you look outside. Well, you might begin to describe the grass and the trees and the vehicles on the street. Now, wouldn't you find it odd or strange if I asked, well, did you see the window? See, one doesn't talk about the window. Instead, one sees the world through it. And yet, in the end, it is the window that is passed on and transferred to our children. They will see the world through the window that we give them. We must make sure that our minds are so filled and saturated with the Scripture that our worldview, our life view, our worldview, our life view is shaped by God. That's what we pass on. We pass on the window to our children. This last few days, we were at a... Um, my mom does this thing called Nana Camp. Where all my siblings get together and all of their kids. And so there's like 40 of us the last couple of days um, at this ranch. And that's a lot of people, really. And there's a lot of really little people in that group. Um, I'm better with older people, you know. That's why I teach in here and not over there. Um, and so it's just crazy thing, but it was, it was interesting to be thinking about this sermon and getting to watch all my siblings as parents um, and realizing, uh, and we all have different styles, we all take things differently. We, we all, however, are called to nurture. Leslie was taking a walk with one of my brother's children. She is the second born. She is four years old. If you ever met Alice, you would not forget Alice. And I'm so thankful she was born to my brother. And uh, I mean it. He, um, it she's so good for him. Um, but Leslie and Alice were walking, and they were walking down this trail, and they saw this sign, and the sign was a verse from a psalm, and it was talking about the kingdom of God. And so Leslie read the verse out loud, and, and Alice heard the kingdom of God. She said, the kingdom of, kingdom of God, I, well, I want to go there. Let's find it. Leslie said, well, you know, when, when you have Jesus, when, when you're a Christian, I mean, you're there. I mean, Jesus is with you all the time. And in one sense, that it, we, we are with, with Jesus, the kingdom of God. And there will be more that comes later. Alice said, well, you know, you know I'm a Christian. She just became a believer a few weeks ago. Leslie said, I do. I know that. I love that, Alice. I'm so excited for you. You know, know what it means now. It means we're sisters now. She said, yeah, I know. And then a bug came. And the conversation changed to bugs. And she said, you know, um, bugs don't really like me because I have sour blood like my dad. W which is true, he does. He's sourest blood in the world. <laughs> Leslie said, well, bugs think I'm, I'm delicious. Uh, I have delicious blood. And Alice said, well, you know, now that we're sisters, maybe your blood could be sour like mine. She's trying to figure it out. Nurturing, having conversation, listening. Isn't that great? 
Well, he goes on to discipline. Well, discipline in this context is the idea of connection uh, with, with correction, with chastening, uh, firmness, enforcing boundaries. But let me ask you, though, when you think of the word discipline, what comes to your mind first? Is it punishment or is it training? See, how we respond to our, to our child when they've disobeyed or they've disappointed you. I mean, so deciding the, the grade of the offense that's been committed and, and the level of discipline that's appropriate, decisions about how many friends to invite to a birthday party, they pale in comparison to the decision of how to respond to your child when they hurt your feelings in the middle of the party. I mean, in discipline, we have the objective of preparing children for maturity. Study your child. Know their personality and, and what discipline fits them. I mean, I have three children. They're all different. I, I have the discipline of my children is all different. I have one child. That, I mean, I just, I just have like dad eyes and glance them that way. And I mean, man, they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're undone. They're so sorry. I have another child. It doesn't matter what look I have, what comes out of my mouth. They're just waiting to know if I'm really serious or not. My children are different. I can't discipline them all the same way. Swindoll says, you know, you have children one at a time. You parent them one at a time. You know, this is why I think it's important to focus not just on child's behavior. Listen, we have to deal, we have to address children's behavior. We, we must address the behavior of children. But we really have to focus on more than just the behavior of children. Parenting is not only behavior modification. It is the confrontation of sin. When sin arises in the heart and the life of your son or your daughter, we must look into it. We must, as parents, confront that with firmness, with tenderness, to remedy a behavior and neglect the issue of sin is to make legalists out of our children. To neglect both, however, is to train them to be at home in the world. A.W. Tozer said it this way, A man by his sin may waste himself, which is to waste that which on earth is most like God. This is man's greatest tragedy and God's heaviest grief. We're to nurture our children. We're to discipline them. And then there's this last word, instruction. The word instruction here is translated in other places. It's the word for counseling in other places. It means to, to exert influence on, on the mind. So to counsel, to admonish, to, 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 to correct. It, 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 if discipline's laying down the rules, this, this training, this instruction, this counseling is, is listening and, and loving and bringing your child along. See, parents who counsel, who instruct their children, give them time. They listen to them. They give them touch. They give them affection. Your children need to communicate with you. Are, are you listening to them? Swindoll was t talking about this. He, he writes about this in his book, Stress Fractures. He said it this way. He said, there was this period of time in my life I was snapping at my wife and our children, choking down my food at mealtimes, feeling irritated at those unexpected interruptions throughout the day. And before long, what I noticed is that things around our home started reflecting the pattern of my hurry-up style. It was becoming unbearable. I distinctly remember after supper one evening the words of our youngest daughter, Colleen. She wanted to tell me something important that had happened to her school at, at her school that day. So she began hurriedly, Daddy, I want to tell you something, and I promise I'll tell you really fast. Suddenly realizing what was going on, he said, Honey, you, you can tell me. You don't have to tell me really fast. Say it slowly. And he said, I'll never forget her answer. She said, Well, then, Dad, would you listen? Slowly. 
That's what it means to instruct, to counsel. Listen to them. Laugh with your kids. I mean, laugh with them. If, if there are places where you've blown it, ask your children for forgiveness. Howard Hendricks said, children aren't looking for perfect parents, they're looking for honest parents. An honest parent, an honest progressing parent is a highly infectious person. Listen to them. Laugh with them. Ask their forgiveness. Encourage your kids. Encourage them. One of the greatest gifts that we can sow into our children is the joy that we have in who they are. Their personalities and their interests and all of those things are built and designed by God that we celebrate those things. I don't know if you ever thought this about your child. I think it about my children. I think, man, when I grow up, I want to be just like them. You catch this glimpse of, of who they are in ways that they are better than you. I mean, my son, for instance, I mean, he has this great attention to detail. I remember when he was young, Legos would be all over the floor, man, and literally thousands of pieces and, and patience and attention to detail. Man, I've never had that. And he's also, he's, he's funny. He's funny like his mom. One of the things, ah, I'm going to out you, but one of the things he likes to do, I can't, so I'm too far now, I got to say it. <laughs> but sometimes, he hasn't done it in a while, but he used to. If I'm talking with somebody here at church, and my kids don't, hey, listen, I'm a pastor here, but I'm talking with somebody here at church, you know, and they know not to just come up and, you know, get in the middle of a conversation, but my son will, in stealth mode, sneak behind me and slap me on the butt <laughs> in the middle of a conversation. So I'm going to look around and he'd be just, you know, I'm like, that's funny. That's funny. He's got this great, bold, I remember this boldness. He, he, I, I was, it was, we were in Wichita and he was really young and he and I, it was Sunday night, I was preaching at church and he was there. All of a sudden, he's just standing on the stage next to me. And he's like, Dad, I'm hungry. <laughs> he's not, I can't do anything about that right now. It's a bold. I love that. I love that. One writer said this. And, so it's a big day in a bird's life when he first begins to fly. His mother senses his readiness as he squirms, stretches his neck, twitches his wings. She may lure him from the nest by holding a tempting tidbit a short distance away, or she may encourage him to take to the air with a gentle nudge. In either case, he flaps for his life on that maiden voyage, and because of her prodding, is soon soaring off alone to explore the wide world around them. Sad to say, birds have more sense than most human parents. Our feathered friends seem to know that the aim of caring for their young is to fit and furnish them to leave the nest, while many parents seem to be unaware that someday their children must leave home and make it on their own. They invest precious little time or effort in preparing them for an independent life. The kids suddenly find themselves as young men and young women facing the prospects of leaving home, ill-equipped to hold a job, handle money, or succeed at marriages. These skills must be learned. And the best way to learn them is from their parents in the home. Which brings me to the third piece this, that your children would launch. This is one of the aims. Bring, bring them up. Raise them up. Ready them. God has created them and written their days. There is a journey that they are on and a and a wider world that they will be launched into. See, the truth is, though, maybe I think many parents haven't embraced the reality that they're on their own journey in the Christian faith. Here are a couple of things. How do you, how do you prepare your child to launch? One, you, you remind them that it is a dangerous path. 
Listen, I, I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is not. I mean, we do not cha- train our children as we launch them and tell them about the path ahead, that their life and faith following the God that created them, it is not one bounce from greener pasture to greener pasture. It is not the ever, um, ever pursuing of greater comforts because, in fact, life Life may be a journey that includes greater discomfort, that leads to greater glory for God in our life. Maturity in Christ brings with it resolve to pursue the kingdom of God at the expense of the comforts of this world. Do our kids know this? This dangerous path. Listen, the world is broken. There is a vicious enemy. And you set off on this path with a sinful heart. That daily we need to confess to God and walk in His Spirit and His resources. Secondly, it's a lifelong faith. We want our kids to grow up, to be disciplined and instructed in the Lord for all their life. Not just something at home. Listen, sowing the seed of God's Word into their life, it begins, parents, that we're sowing the seed of God's Word into our life. Christianity's not an infomercial that promises get rich quick, lose weight fast. It's a lifelong journey. Ten years, twenty years, fifty years, beyond however long you live. It's not just something in the now, it's something for all of our life. Third, we need to instill in our children as we launch them a vision to lead. Listen, our children are the next generation in this church, next generation of leaders and elders and pastors and teachers. And This is their church. They're the leaders in their families, a vision to lead their families, a vision to lead in their community that we live in. And a vision to finish well in life. Living with the end in mind. Listen, as parents, we've got to be careful as we instruct and prepare to, to, to go to high school and to drive and to go to college and to get a job that, that we are also instilling a vision that goes long past that. Living with the end in mind that what is at the end of all of this makes this, the middle, seem light and momentary. See, the reality, I think most people in, in the church dabble in the things of God. And we, our kids, are growing up in a post-modern, post-church post-Christian world and the dabbling in the things of God that will not do it for them. If we want our children to arrange their life based upon how all of this ends at the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, then many of us have to rearrange our lives in the present. Two things I'll say, and then we'll take communion. What, what if um, you have children that have walked away? or If you face the day that you have one of your children that, that walk away, walk away from the faith, walk away from the church, walk away from the family. I would say this, if we had preached this whole bit from Ephesians 6.1 and the responsibility of the children, here's what you need to know. At the end of the day, Children are their own people and they will have their own set of responsibilities both before God and before others. You can teach them wisely. You can raise them morally. You can instruct them in faith and you can display grace. And they might still go astray. That does not mean it is the parent's fault. 
the first parents of the Bible help us with this. Adam and Eve had children who took very different paths. One was a worshiper of God. The other murdered his brother. And God Himself as a father to Israel. You can read page after page after page. Israel's rebellion against their father. And yet, in his love, he remained faithful. The next group, the last group I'll talk to, maybe you're here this morning and you think, you know what? I've blown it. I, I, I blow it regularly or I have blown it generally. Let me say to you this. Um, no principle is foolproof. Even if you sought in all of your will to be the perfect parent, you still and will always have the ability to make a colossal error. But the good news is that there is a greater influence than us at work in our children's lives. We often thought, why, why doesn't God just take care of all of this Himself? I mean, they're His children. I mean, why, why doesn't He take care of it all Himself? And my answer is, is that in one sense He does, and in another sense that what comes filtered through His hands as a loving Father gets transmitted through us. Imperfectly, yes. imperfectly from our perspective. Yet, it's by His design. So we work hard. We, we work hard. We, but that's only part of the equation. We parent by faith. We trust God. And we parent with grace. And we seek to nurture our children in ways that God's designed them. Launch them into the world Filled to the brim with His love and with our love and with the intimate knowledge of Jesus as their Savior. Because they've seen the evidence of that in our lives. Listen, God loves your children more than you love your children. Knew them before the foundations of the world brought them into existence in a time in a place in your family and you're the parent and he has not left you alone you know it's fitting we'll observe communion um, in fact if the men will come forward we um, prepare it's a great morning to do it, it it's this great reminder. Maybe you're here and you think, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged or maybe you think I'm, I'm convicted or... You know, the reality is God could have created things any way that He wanted to. He created us to exist in families for men and women as mothers and fathers, as husbands and wives to come together and to have children. That what He has created and willed before the foundations of time comes in existence through parents. There are people called father. There are people called mother. So when God comes in his love to us and says, I am your father, you are my children, we have a language with which to know that means. And God's love for us is demonstrated in nothing greater than what we celebrate this morning. We remember this morning the death and the burial and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And so this morning, we, um, we come to God our Father, remembering the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, in the, in the bread and in the juice. The bread, His, his life, His body was broken, His, his perfection. And in His blood, the shed blood that covers over all of our sin. So that we, by faith, believing in Him, 
would be reconciled to God. He died for all our sin so that we could live in all His glory. Before you make another step as a parent, let me ask you, have you made this step? Have you trusted the eternal Son for your eternal life? Father, we come to you this morning. We are grateful, thankful, overwhelmed at what you have entrusted us with. All the joys and all the very hard things and all the ways in which we walk and don't know the end of the road that we are walking. But Father, we trust that you do. And so as we come this morning to this communion table, we are reminded of the sacrifice of your Son. We are reminded, Father, of his shed blood that has covered over all of our sin. Father, that you've made the way for sinful, rebellious people just like me to be reconciled to you. So that all I am was placed on Jesus and he died with it and for it. And all he is, I get clothed in it. So that, Father, I stand before you as your child. So we remember that. We celebrate it. And like the scripture says, we'll eat and drink and we'll proclaim the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus until he returns. Father, help us to do that well. We pray this the only way we can in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.